The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. You've been sipping something? Listen, come home. All is forgiven. We need your money. And you need us. Bottom has dropped out of the market. I'm wiped out. I'd slit my wrists if I could afford a razor and you're looking to borrow money from me. <laughs> what did you do that for? Hysteria. You did it to my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Continues in turmoil, fights are breaking out between the dealers. Is this the end of capitalism as we know it? <laughs> Good morning, London. It's Thursday, October 17th, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 519-661-3600 is always a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation today. Or you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org to let us know your thoughts on the subjects that we talk about and perhaps suggest some subjects you'd like to hear talked about. Today we're going to dispel an American myth, or at least Robert's going to, I understand. Uh, you're going to have a tea party in the second half of the show, is that right? Yeah, let's have a tea party. I'll okay. be the Mad Hatter. Okay. <laughs> well, for my part, I'm going to be talking about a couple of related subjects, and they kind of are a pickup from even last week's show, which was really about entertainment, but we talked about capitalism a lot. And that is, of course, uh, dealing with what's happened in the States over the last few weeks. And uh, the moral barometer, as I call it, which is money itself. Now, of course, the United States is on the precipice of yet another fiscal crisis. And they supposedly solved it for another, what, 60 to 90 days? Is that how it's going now? Mm-hmm. And uh, again... Kick the can down the road, as they say. Yeah. Faced with the choice of having to increase its legislated debt ceiling, or sequester to the automatic government spending cuts, which was also part of the debt ceiling legislation, and they don't want to go there. The crisis has been somewhat incorrectly dis, you know, just depicted as a crisis of America's default or insolvency, which is not the case. It's really more a moral crisis. Um, not a debt ceiling, a moral ceiling, if you will. <laughs> About when is the right time to actually cut government spending instead of increasing it? When's the right time, Robert? No. no. Yeah, like maybe yesterday? Maybe 200 years <laughs> yeah. ago. Yeah. Now, that's the real crisis. You know, Ayn Rand wrote that money is a barometer of a society's virtue. When you see that trading is done not by consent, but by compulsion. When you see that in order to produce, you need to obtain permission from men who produce nothing. When you see that money is flowing from those who deal not in goods, but in favors. When you see that men get richer by graft, and by pull, than by work, and your laws don't protect you against them, but protect them against you. When you see corruption being rewarded and honesty becoming a self-sacrifice, you may know that your society is doomed. Was that best yet? That was Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand. Oh. John Galt himself speaking in that speech. And, of course, morality is at the heart of the issue, of all issues of money. And to make that point even more significant is the Pope himself, Pope Francis. 
And I was just I have this article here from the September 23rd London Free Press, Pope Slams Worship of Money God, written by Philip Poletta of Reuters. And this is out of uh, Cagliari in Sardinia. Pope, this was just like three weeks ago, three or four weeks ago. Pope Francis made one of his strongest attacks on the global economic system on Sunday, saying it could no longer be based on a god called money and urged the unemployed to fight for work. The crowd of about 20,000 chanted what Francis called a prayer for work, work, work. They cheered each time he spoke of the rights of workers and the personal devastation caused by joblessness. We don't want this globalized economic system which does us so much harm. Men and women have to be at the center of an economic system as God wants, not money. Are you reading from Atlas Shrugged again? <laughs> no, I'm reading from the Pope. That's what he's... he's wow, because that could have been read in Atlas Shrugged. Well, in terms of the negative. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, of course, economics is about nothing else but money and finance, but... That doesn't matter. The Pope made it clear that his assessment was not limited to the local situation. Quote, it is a consequence of a world choice, of an economic system that brings about this tragedy. An economic system that has at, it, at its center an idol which is called money, he said to cheers of the crowd. While Francis's predecessor, Benedict, also called for changes to economic systems, he was more likely to use dense intellectual language. <laughs> That's what they call it, right? Now... You know, money is not the center of any economic system, since all economic systems, even those diametrically opposed to each other, deal with money, right? Or some means of exchange and savings. Or currency. Yeah. At the center of any economic system is a principle on which it operates. With capitalism, that principle is freedom and consent. With all other systems, it's a restriction, a compulsion, or a coercion. Guess which side the Pope's on? <laughs> Guess which side the Vatican's on? And when the writer of this particular article says that the previous pope used dense intellectual language, well, that's just a pseudonym for bovine excrement, as former <laughs> uh, controller Orlando Zampronia would say. It's done to facilitate the non-understanding of economics while earning the trust of the victims. It works every time, don't you think? Yes, yeah, apparently so. Yeah. Unfortunately. So, Pope Francis has Vatican quite worried, writes Tom Harper, October 4th, 2013, Free Press. And Harper seems to speak, or speak uh, favorable of Pope Francis, citing the Pope's, what does this say, reaching out for dialogue with Islam, refusing to live in the papal apartments inside the Vatican, and adds, what is worse, Pope Francis is suspected by these same critics of planning to permit ordination of women, other issues include the Pope's plans to reform the infamous Vatican Bank, which apparently is plagued with scandals. Scandals surrounding the bank have included rumors of mafia money laundering <laughs> and even connections with the mysterious death of John Paul I, who also had intentions of reforming it. He died in his sleep in 1978, only 33 days after he was in office. To outsiders, the new Pope seems to be living a life truly modeled on Christ. However, this is obviously dangerous. It's no secret what happened to him, he writes. And then, of course, uh, Herman Gooden, perhaps, I don't know if it was in response to Har Harper's editorial the day before, but Gooden chimed in the following day on October 5th with his article, For All His Folksiness, Pope Francis Still Assuredly Catholic. Now, um, as opposed to being a Christian, I, which, of course, Christ could never have been since Christ, the Christ was Jewish, right? Mm -hmm. So Christ couldn't have been a, a Catholic or a Christian. Christianity became a sect, hence we have Judeo-Christianity. But uh, basically he, he says that, uh, you know, if you dig into all the press accounts that make him sound like he's veering from the Catholic way, 
he says, no, you'll find as soon as you dig into them, you'll always find that while he may not be blessed with the most supernatural eloquence of his two predecessors, this pope remains recognizably, reassuredly, and even refreshingly Catholic, which to me means anti-capitalist, which is the way they've been, you know, for, for since I've been alive. Every time they issue an encyclical, it's against capitalism without saying it, though. They always say it's the economic system, the world economic system. Now, while all this religious baffle-gab is quite impossible to make any rational sense out of, what's really at the heart of it all is money. Money, wealth, poverty. The stuff of which truly great religion is made of. And the reason is that people fear poverty and death. People love wealth and comfort. Since money is seen as the means to the latter, and its absence is the consequence of poverty and despair and death, isn't it curious that a church would preach about the evils of money? That we shouldn't be thinking about money, but thinking about people instead. So how does that get food on the table? Caring about your neighbor, or even caring about yourself, won't do it. The food has to be produced before it can be eaten. People before profits, say the, said the wacko communists in a double-plus-good contradictory oxymoronic association of two things that, you know, do not have anything to do with one another. Find me an exception to the rule. The people who talk against wealth and profit and who so fraudulently feel for the poor are always the ones who want your money and who preach the ideology of poverty in order to perpetuate it. And, you know, on Thanksgiving Day, I was listening to the radio, and again, I hear that tired and futile voice of Glenn Pearson of the London Food Bank every year lamenting that the government has studied poverty to death but won't do anything about it. We've heard that ever since we've been in politics, right, Robert? There will be uh, poor always. Yes. Somebody well, said that. Well, <laughs> somebody... <laughs> I'll be getting back to that. Of course, you know, it's obvious that studying poverty won't bring you jobs and stuff. It, studying poverty won't bring around wealth. Why doesn't the government study wealth creation? And isn't wealth the antidote to poverty? You know, it's like jobs. If you want to have jobs in this country, you don't do it by studying jobs and, and having trade barriers and labor monopolies. You do it by having more employers, who by definition are the providers of the jobs. So that's where you would have to put your effort. But instead, our moral culture hates business. It hates employers. It hates capitalism. And... You know, basically all of the other mechanisms and values necessary to bring about the very jobs and wealth that everybody seems to want. So, if you want to alleviate poverty in this world, there's only one known successful path to that goal. And that is something we discovered, freedom and capitalism. The two things against which, against which, all religions preach in their misguided, if not evil, attempts to cure poverty. So... You know, religious doctrines applied to political, scientific, and economic realms are, are a formula for disaster. And in, the, in those realms, in the political, scientific, and economic realms, all of these realms depend on and rely on an application of reason to the facts of reality. Faith won't do the trick. But here's, here's the kick. It's not just the religious injection that d destroys all these disciplines. It's also when, say, economists try to pretend that their theories can solve political problems or that their theories can solve scientific problems. Or when you get a scientist who thinks his discovery is going to solve all the po politics problems. and you, know, you hear it all the time. And when they, when they do this, they start to sound just as undecipherable as the Pope. So speaking of economists, um, this is from... Well, originally, the New York Times reprinted in the National Post on September 23rd, and it was and the head headed "Fighting the Poverty Fighters," written by Joe Nocera. 
and he writes about Nina Monk's new book, The Idealist, which is about the well-known economist Jeffrey Sachs and his quest to end poverty, as the subtitle puts it. Have you ever heard of him? No. I, I, I knew the name from somewhere, but this finally clarified it for me. The quest began in 2005 when Sachs, who directs the Earth Institute at Columbia University, started an ambitious program called the Millennium Villages Project. He and his team chose a handful of sub-Saharan African villages when they imposed a series of interventions in such areas as agriculture, health, and education. The idea was that these villages would show Africa and the world how the continent could loosen the grip that extreme poverty had on so many of its people. With almost every intervention, Monk documents the chasm that exists between the villagers and those running the project. At one point, the Millennium Villages Project persuades the farmers in Ruira to grow maize instead of their traditional crop called maitoke. The results were fantastic, she reports, a bumper crop. Except there were no buyers. <laughs> no buyers for the maize. So most of it wound up being eaten by rats. In Dertuk, Sox staff decided it should set up a livestock market. It flopped. Efforts to convince villagers to start small businesses largely failed. The critical problem of getting clean water to the villages was enormously expensive. Quote, there is no question the lives in, of people in Ruira have been improved, Monk told me. I've seen it, but she's dubious about what it means, other than the fact that if you pump millions and millions of dollars into an isolated African village, the villagers' lives will be better. <laughs> the things in Africa, oh, that things in Africa are getting better is undeniable. Child mortality is down, as is the number of people living in extreme poverty. In his book, Emerging Africa, Steve Radlett, the former chief economist for the U.S. Agency of International Development, gives credit to such factors as more democratic governments, a new class of civil servants and business people, and sounder economic policies. Isn't that where it all starts, if you really want to start improving things? Well, it starts with a philosophy. Yes. And what are those? They never tell you what the policies are when they write articles like this. Because they never want to admit that they're always, they're always capitalists if they improve things, mm -hmm. right? So they just say, the system, this, that, if, if it's capitalism. If, it's, it's just amazing how they avoid that word because it, uh, it prevents people from identifying the solution, right? Now, this gets us back, you, you said earlier, Robert, you said some, some guy said something about poverty always being with us. <laughs> it's a line from Jesus Christ Superstar. I don't know if oh, Jesus, Jesus said Christ. it. I think so. <laughs> I had a real learning experience here at the university a few years ago when I gave a class for Jeff Schlemmer, his law class, and I was talking about poverty, and it wasn't until after the class was over when some kids hung around to talk with me after, because the debate continued, that it struck me these kids actually believed that you could solve poverty in an absolute sense, yeah. right? And I didn't realize that was the Achilles heal in my argument. I, did, I wasn't addressing that. I wasn't saying to them, I was saying, oh, here's what we can do. Yeah, but what are you going to do about this person and that person? And, you know, the, the nature of poverty is not that it's caused by anything as such, unless you're talking about the introduction of coercion, fraud, theft, of course, and all that stuff that thieves and governments engage in. But other than that, poverty without action and planning and doing something is the natural state of things, wouldn't you say? Like, I mean, what we call yeah. poor, right? Yeah, if you don't do anything, you're going to be poor. So what's really unnatural, very unnatural, highly so, is wealth. Animals do not have wealth, nor the capacity to create it. And the gods do not need wealth. To create wealth, one requires a firm commitment to reason applied to reality. 
a government that operates on similar principles, and an economy that operates on capital capitalistic principles. So in a word, we call that freedom. Now, these principles are not an invention. Somebody just didn't come up and invent them. They're a discovery. And like the laws of nature, you can't break them without negative consequences or without great expenditures of energy, let's put it that way, because we can break the force of gravity of Earth, but not without great expenditure of energy when we send that rocket up. And, of course, it works on the principle of gravity, too. Sounds like you're talking about, you're channeling Isabel Patterson here. Well, almost, yeah. <laughs> That's true. She talks like that in terms of energy. Mm -hmm. But, of course, wealth is a completely human creation, which makes the Pope's declaration that it's a choice between money or men and women all the more outrageously ludicrous on its face. Two meaningless floating abstractions that have no consequential association with each other in the way that they're being compared. And speaking of uh, Isabel Patterson, I was reminded of Isabel Patterson's example within the fields of mathematics and geometry. When she gave us that example, she said, let it be said that an isosceles triangle is green, right? She notes that the sentence is grammatically correct. It has a verb, it has a noun, it has a subject, but she also notes that the statement is utterly meaningless, right? It has no meaning. And that's the language of the poverty activists, or poverty pimps, as libertarians call them. But most of all, it's something, you know, that hit me like a ton of bricks when I was talking to that law class with um, Jeff Schlemmer and all those kids. These kids all, all believed that you could end poverty permanently, that somehow it was curable in the absolute sense. And, you know, given that tremendous leap from reality, the next obvious assumption made is, therefore, if poverty exists, it must be the fault of the people with wealth, right? And that the problem is merely one of wealth distribution in a more equitable way. And th I think that's the moral economic essence of the intellectual and emotional play gripping the world today, is that that's how they view things, and it's, and it's fundamentally incorrect. Um, Every so-called poverty fighter I've ever heard begins on the total fantasy that wealth and prosperity are the natural starting point or equilibrium of human existence, economic existence. And it isn't, and it could never be. A lack of wealth is the starting point and equilibrium of all human beings and human societies. And there simply is no such thing as what we call poverty in a world without wealth. What would, what would that word mean? Nothing, right? It's totally a comparative word. So that in itself is, is interesting. It, it would be impossible to conceive of poverty unless you could first conceive of wealth. So if no one has any wealth, then nobody can be poor, at least in any meaningful sense of the word. And, of course, that's because poverty is a concept relative only to wealth, and wealth is not money. Wealth is production, and this is Isabel Patterson, talk, not talking directly, but that's her lesson. And production is profit. And on that reality fall all the pillars of all the eradicate poverty efforts, wh whether well-intended or not. Simply transferring the production of some people to other non-productive people, whether domestically or internationally, will not eradicate poverty in the recipients. As long as they're dependent on the productive, they themselves will never be able to become productive. And thus, even the middle class, you know, let alone become wealthy. So, in this context, money is the medium of trade and exchange. But wealth is a process. It's a process of production in a free economic response to economic and only economic demand. And that's what drives the economy. Without freedom, it doesn't work. 
Because unless you're free to buy what you want, that money has no value. That's where the value comes from, is from your freedom. And that's why Ayn Rand says, money is a barometer of a society's virtue. And that's basically the point I'm trying to make about money. It's more a moral issue than an economic one in terms of the crisis we're seeing in the States. Would you concur with that, Robert? Oh, yeah. More money is the root of all good. I think she also said some way along the way. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a break now. And uh, again, the next couple of breaks are from the movie I reviewed last week, which I understand, Robert, you've seen since last week. You thought I would hate that I movie. I did. Where and the heart is. I really enjoyed it. It was... Um, it was sublime in its treatment of life and capitalism. It, it truly was. It, it, it was a little work of art in its own, wasn't it? It really was, and I really enjoyed it, and I encourage people to go out and have a look at it, if you can find it. It's the 1990 yeah. version of Where the Heart Is. Yeah, and uh, these next two scenes are from that film. Three weeks until Lionel finishes his collection. How long to go on the calendar? About the same. We're not going to make it on what we've got. People, people can tell if you don't have money. They look at you as if you smell bad. Mm. And it's not only what it can buy, but just having it is sexy. I mean, even Tom. Is he getting to you? Let me drop a hint. I can raise his rent. Don't you dare. If he even suspected it, he'd be totally unbearable. again, Mr. McBain. You definitely look better than you did yesterday. Half dead and babbling. Speaking in tongues, probably. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? My offspring? Daddy, look! Mine? I've decided to forgive you. about any of that stuff, Dad. What? What? Sorry. Yeah, but there's not a single thing that any one of you would fight for. Not a single cause. Well, um, well, there's the bald eagle. Yes. But I wouldn't fight for it. I'm a pacifist. Oh. There must be something. I just can't think of it right now. Ah. Poor dad there, eh? Dealing with his kids who he thinks have no values, and they don't even know that they do. <laughs> right? It struck me as well, yes. They were um, looking at him there, and when he said that, I'm going, boy, they have lots of values. One of them valued their art, the other valued his, uh, his gaming, the other valued... That, that was the irony of it, right? Yeah. And they were all putting themselves out for their father, too, who, who they rescue from his despair, mm -hmm. right? And, and so it was amazing that they're all sitting there, I can't think of anything, because they're thinking in terms of causes, like the things we hear from politicians, not in terms of the values that are necessary to life and home, which is why that movie's probably called Where the Heart Is, right? Now, of course, this is all about a values crisis and, and, and certainly 
we, we get disgusted with our politicians, and no one more so, I think, than uh, former talk show host on CJBK, Sean Array, who wrote in the London Free Press on October 5th that politicians owe us transparency. And now I've had many conversations with Shauna Ray over the years while she was uh, working there. So I, I know a lot about how she thinks and the way she talks about these issues. But she wrote an interesting article on that date in the Free Press, and she writes, and I'll just read that part that I, I want to focus on, quote, So why don't you vote? Yes, I'm talking to you, the person who desperately wants to be engaged in your community, but who thinks that your voice doesn't matter or that the people who are politically engaged are doing so strictly for underhanded and self-serving reasons. Am I right? I've never publicly said it before now, but there were times when I was a radio talk show host interviewing some politicians when I felt like I needed a shower afterwards to wash away the remnants of the bald-faced lying that I had just facilitated. <laughs> There's an admission, eh? We've given politicians too much power, which in turn makes us feel powerless. We've raised politicos up to the status of untouchable. Hence, when they are accused of heinous wrong wrongdoing, they are steadfast and unafraid. And how about all the fighting between parties? Obviously, that's not new, but I know I'm not the only one who was nauseated and turned off by each representative criticizing the others for their lack, but themselves pretty short on their own plan for change. But for those of you who are politically inclined, I have a challenge for you. How about telling us up front who you are? I don't mean how upstanding you are in the community and how engaged in the party or platform, but how about telling us when you failed and when you struggled and maybe that you got fined as a teenager? How about being relatable and imperfect like the rest of us? So how about it, potential candidates? How about pulling the curtain back and letting us know you are indeed flawed? Who's up for the challenge? If you are, you have my vote. And that was pretty well the gist of that. Any thoughts? <laughs> Two. One is that we already know uh, everybody is flawed. Everybody has skeletons in their closets, especially politicians. And two, it, it just strikes me as rather strange that somebody would vote for somebody who is uh, for their flaws. You, you know what you, is you, it is? You got perfect, Robert. You know, that's exactly where I'm going because really... It's clear that she's having a problem with understanding politics and, and finance and stuff, which is understandable because most people don't understand them in, in, in the way they should. So to think that such people are qualified to select other people, similarly unqualified, <laughs> who have to solve economic and financial issues, I mean, that's beyond the pale. Isn't that what you're saying? Yes, that's exactly right. And so going out of your way to choose people with flaws and imperfections is outrageously the wrong thing to suggest or to do. And I, and I have to ask, what would motivate someone to say that? Now, I've spoken to Shauna many times over the years when she hosted CJBK, and we discussed this issue many times. And at the root of her concerns was that she wanted to make sure that the government's social benefits, particularly free health care, would be there for her. And I actually got her to admit on the air once uh, that her concern for the health care of others was really driven by a concern of her own needs, right? And uh, I know I got a recording of that somewhere. I have to dig it up. But Shauna has already identified one of the problems in her article, yet suggested nothing to change it. Quote, we've given politicians too much power, which in turn makes us feel powerless. Well, if politicians having too much power is a problem, why not suggest reducing the power of politicians through some legislated means? And why not offer your voting support to the party or candidate committed to that goal? 
Instead, China Ray suggests that we give this irresponsible, unmitigated power that she already admits they have, let's give it to flawed people. <laughs> yes. Right? It just, you, 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 see, you see where the thinking gets so short-circuited. Maybe she's not saying flawed. Maybe she's just it, saying that be truthful. I, I, I understand that, but, but, but the argument is... That's the surface argument. That's not the motivation. It doesn't mm. make sense to say that. I'm looking for flawed people. Why would you go out of your way to say that? I mean, aren't, it's like you say, aren't the people in power now already flawed enough? Haven't they given us lots of examples of their flaws? Isn't mm. that what we're laughing at them every day about the, you know, the, 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 the gas plant and all that? Aren't they flawed enough? They lie to us. That's a flaw. I think it's a good flaw. They're using drugs. They all smoke pot. They all okay, so they're all coming up with their flaws. How is that going to help you solve the economic problems? You know, I think the disconnect in reasoning reveals motive. What's wrong with smoking pot? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's, Bob, it's not about smoking pot. It's about, it's about the, the admission of it, right? And her motive, I think, is not better government, but more personal security, even if it's only an illusion, right? I think the reason so many politicians have lied to her in the past and continue to lie to us now is because they know that in order to get our vote, they have to play to the similar illusions of the public, right? The public has been conditioned into wanting free, meaning no price to the consumer, single-payer, high-quality health care, which is not possible in any long-term sustainable way. Any smart politician knows that, but he also knows that the voting public doesn't know it, so he has to play to that to get voted, or doesn't want to know it, or denies it. And, uh, you know, what does the average voter really expect from his government? Simply to redistribute the created wealth, as was expressed in the philosophy of past PC Ontario Premier Ernie Eves, and which continues to be the fundamental basis of all political promises from all political parties in the legislature. Now, if that's what the public really wants from its politicians, I got news for you. There aren't any honest ones. You can't do that and be honest. You simply can't be honest if all you're doing is robbing Peters to pay Paul. I can get a monkey out of the jungle and do that. You can push, push some buttons. And, uh, you know... As for economics, let us never forget that the free and free enterprise or in free markets refers specifically to freedom from coercion or, or compulsion in whatever economic system of negotiating prices you have in place, whether it's good or goods or labor. And under capitalism, it's the government's job to keep it that way by being the referee and not a player. The proven result of this, the creation of wealth and a lessening of poverty. Under any other system, and to, to the degree that governments get involved and become a player in the game, you simply don't have a free market or free enterprise system. So you can't have honest politicians. And the result is wealth is not only not created, the wealth already created is being destroyed. It's, it's a double whammy. So if to anybody truly interested in solving poverty, a principled advocacy of capitalism and freedom is both the starting point and the ending point when it comes to the proper role of government. After that, the rest is up to us, or as you might say, we the people. <laughs> what do you think, Rob? Well, I don't think that ending poverty should be the goal no. of having capitalist government or free well government. Well said, thank you. It, it is the consequence. Right. It is not the goal. The goal is to act in your own self-interest. Yeah. It's the cart, not the horse. In, yes, in, in that sense. Yes, exactly. It follows. Okay, time to break for the half hour, and when we return, we'll continue our discussion. We'll have a tea party. Yeah. This is all I have left in the world. I gave everything else I had to poor Mrs. Jose. We've lost everything in the house, and, and I can't reach you. 
father outbid him, pushing the stock way up. Now, when this raider figured out that he couldn't take over, well, he sold all his stock, taking a big profit, as did many others, myself included. Now, that left your father holding a lot of stock at an inflated price. Then came article in the Wall Street Journal about how this house was holding up development. Now, that started a stampede of selling. And then... I guess that's when the bank stepped in, took over your father's stock and all his assets. Yeah, yeah, and then they collected all the collateral. Oh, my beautiful house in Connecticut. Okay, all right. I'm head of the family. This is a crisis. It's all right, I'll think of something. I can't think of anything. Look, I'm ready to help out. We'll manage without you. You betrayed the whole family. I hope I never see you again. Right. But you wait. You'll come crawling. Oh, I don't think so. I might, Tom. Oh, what are you talking about, Chloe? We're broke. Only the rich can afford principles. This is so unfair. I was just moving money around. That's, that, that's what I do. Well, I guess you all have to look for jobs now. Maya, please, please, please. Stock market's crashed again. He's out of it. Come on. He's out of it. What about me? They wouldn't pay. What is it? They for shots. How humiliating! You get out of my house, you Judas bastard! it is your house with all the useless shares I have in American demolition. Little swine, you ruined me. I tried to save you and it ruined me. Save me? I bought your stock at hit bottom. I spent every last dollar I had to buy it up to keep the business in the family. Now with the crash, it's worthless. I don't understand. Very touched. Mr. Hancock requires of me? You'd like your advice. Well, if he is in need of legal advice, I will speak to him. And if this is yet again an exercise to win me over to John, your side... John, it's business, John. The dot, the other, the beaver. Just in. Their holes full of tea. All British ships. The king demands that their cargo be unloaded. Cargo in which we, the citizens of Boston, must pay a new tax. Subject to arrest. You will not laugh this cargo, gentlemen. This is legitimate cargo. Tea from the East India Company that you are bound by law to unload. What's legitimate about it, friend? No other tea is allowed in Boston Harbor. Either we drink the king's foul brew or nothing at all. And who may you be, sir? John Hancock, ship owner. Not John Hancock, smuggler. Watch your word, sir. 
I'm an honest man being strangled by Monopoly. Shame on you, sir. Shame, Shame on you. Shame on you. That's precisely what I think the Americans need now is another tar party. <laughs> Not tea party, but a tar party. And that's a scene from John Adams. Yeah. I think it was an HBO special, yeah. seven um, You know, that shows. was a, a, an absolute marvelous series, by the way, on the birth of the American you know, revolution. The whole, well, the whole country. The nation, how it yes. started. Yeah. And we've used many audio bites from it, but I'll tell you, when I was forced to see that tar, tarring and feathering to get this clip, Yes. I forgot how heavy a scene that was. That was, you know, you always think of tar and feathering as a joke, like something you do at a, for, as a prank or something, right? And when you realize what a real tar and feathering was, it was almost the next thing to getting a, a, death, a, a sentence. death sentence. Yes. And you were lucky if you got away from that crowd alive half the time. And I yeah. don't imagine how you get that stuff off. It was just amazing. In reality, you know, that particular scene, um, a prelude to the t uh, tea party, which I think happened the following day or the night, um, there was 7,000 people there. 7,000 people. Now, on in John Adams, the series, mm -hmm. we saw on the dockyard probably a few hundred, maybe 500 or so, but remember... Oh, so they actually it. understated it in, in, in the... Sure, yeah, you'd need 7,000 extras to... Yeah, uh, couldn't play afford that. Scene. That was a time <laughs> when there was no internet and people actually took interest in the local happenings. And when the ship came in, the city went down to greet it, yeah. greet it you know. But anyway, the Boston Tea Party, that's the first tea party, occurred in Boston on December 16, 1773. And it was a protest not of taxation, as some might lead you to believe, but of taxation without representation. It was one of the seven, several acts of protest that led up to the American War of Independence. And what is interesting to note about the Boston Tea Party is that it was primarily a, a revolt of foreign rule and not an act of defiance of individuals against a government per se. It was an act of one collective, Americans, against another collective, the English, represented by their parliament in Westminster and their king, George. Now, what many people mistakenly believe is that the United States of America and the War of Independence, which brought about its birth, was born out of a struggle for individual rights. False. This was not the case. It was born of a struggle for democracy. With democracy meaning oh, you're upset a lot of Americans that, with that the one. authority of the govern governors derived their authority from the people being governed. The English citizens of Massachusetts had no representation in Westminster, and therefore any laws affecting them were considered by them to be undemocratic, ruled by a foreign government. That's why they threw the tea in the harbor. Not because they were being taxed, but because the tax was being implemented by foreigners on them. They had no say in it. And it was only a fortuitous circumstance of the time oh. that many members of the Continental Congress, which oversaw the creation of the new republic, were men of the Enlightenment. And men like Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, were literate followers of the enlightened philosophers of Spinoza, Locke, Voltaire, and as such... Their influence on the formation of the United States led them to act in protection of individual rights against capricious actions of the state or the ruling classes.
In the film, John Adams has some wonderful exchanges uh, in terms of the discussions they had. Oh, it does. Remember, we played a lot of them, too, on, on previous shows. But it's interesting, you, you know, you, said, you almost seem to be suggesting that, well, the Tea Party, therefore, is not as significant as a lot of people think it is, because I think what they were fighting for was still something significant in terms of taxation with representation well, as with us, right? Of course. So, so, and that is a very significant principle because we've abandoned it here domestically. We don't have taxation with, with uh, representation anymore. It doesn't work that way. I, I, I'm allowed to vote municipally and I don't pay municipal taxes, hmm. right? So, uh, I have, repre- so other people I have can- representation without taxation. You have ta- yeah, well, yeah, right? yeah, that's true. Now, other people can impose taxes on you. Now, of course, people will argue, well, you're paying your rent th- or your, your taxes through your rent, right? Mm-hmm. And while that is technically true, that's not a tax on me. Or on, I, I will not get a bill from the city. And if I leave that unit in that apartment, the poor landlord still has to pay tax on that unit, whether I'm sitting there or not. True. So it cannot be argued that I am the taxpayer for that unit, even though I cover the expense, just as I cover the expense of everything else they do, mm-hmm. right? So that was a huge factor, and I think getting back to taxation with representation might be a step in the right direction. No, it was a good thing, but yeah. don't, don't mistake me. I'm not suggesting no, that it was not a significant and proper event. It was. Yep. It's just misinterpreted as being against taxation, which it wasn't. Correct. And so we have these enlightened uh, lawyers at the time, John Adams and that, uh, putting together a Declaration of Independence which reflected that enlightened view of government versus the actions such as with the Boston Tea Party, which led to a revolution, but where they weren't actions necessarily in favor of individualism over collectivism. They were simply against foreign um, rule. Now remember that Bostonians did not rebel against taxation, but against taxation without representation. They did not care that they were being robbed or that the East India Tea Company had a monopoly. They cared that they did not have a say in such taxation and monopolization. And I've got proof for that. The teeming masses rebelled, but it was a handful of enlightened men who formed the United States, not the teeming masses. 240 years later, we have the teeming masses of the United States content in their sorry state of taxation since it is their representatives who have imposed the taxation. There's the proof. Mm-hmm. There's the proof that they don't care about the taxation. They just want a, a say in it. The men of the Enlightenment are long dead, and there are few to replace them. Those who do exist are shouted down and ridiculed today. You couldn't have a John Adams today, I don't think, in a position that he held, or Thomas Jefferson. The United States came into existence as a government formed to protect the individual rights of its citizens on a fluke of circumstance, perhaps never to be repeated again. You know, that's a little depressing when you say that. <laughs> um, well, sorry, but it's my <laughs> no, take. Because I think what you're saying is the opportunity that they had there may never come up again. Is it the people you're talking about or the opportunity? Like a new nation isn't born every day. But nations rise and fall, and I'm thinking that we might have that opportunity come up again with, with the way our economy's going. It'll be messy. <laughs> No doubt. So was the American Revolution. Today we have people like Barack Obama leading the states in a Congress comprised mostly of morally corrupt representatives who assume office on the promise of spending more and taxing more and creating monopolies and restricting trade and unrepressing dissent. These are voted in on these principles. The actions of the Congress of the United States today mirror the actions of King George in that the tyranny of the king has been outmatched by today's Congress. The level of taxation is higher, bureaucracy is greater, 
violation of individual rights goes on. And these actions of the American government have surpassed anything wrought by Georgia or his government, despite the noble beginnings of that nation by the enlightened views of its founding fathers. Indeed, a case could be made that countries still under the reign of British monarch, countries like Canada or Australia, have surpassed the United States in their protection of their citizens' individual rights. You can make such a case. It leads me to the question, given the history of the states, born of rebellion and forged in liberty, as they say, and given the image of the United States portrayed in common culture, that of a nation of freedom and individualism, when does it become appropriate for the people of the United States to take up arms against their domestic oppressors? Which, by the way, is in the oath of every member of the armed forces in the United States to protect their constitution against all um, oppressors, oppressors, foreign and domestic. Ooh. Those Americans who turn to the Second Amendment of their constitution, that amendment which recognizes their right to keep and bear arms point out that such a right exists to protect against a tyrannical government domestically. The question then becomes, how tyrannical does a government have to be to be overturned by an armed populace? Unfortunately, it seems that the people are quite willing to bear a government far more tyrannical than the one they overthrew 237 years ago. The irony is not lost. This seems to be clear evidence that the United States of 1776 is but a historical footnote. That country, along with its idealism, its individualism, and its clear sense of purpose, is lost. Lost in time, only to have been replaced by a regime as dictatorial, tyrannical, and bureaucratic as the one it replaced. Now, the United States of today is hard, it's hard to distinguish from any other Western nation. In many respects, it is far more brutal in its actions against its own citizens than any other Western nation. Certainly, it's... Just consider, for example, the... Uh, uh, prison sentences given for victimless crimes. You can go to jail forever on a three-strike uh, rule down there just for smoking pot yeah, and getting ridiculous. caught. Absolutely that's brutal. That's why there are more people in American jails than any other jail. That's right. Yeah. Certainly it's more wealthier than most other nations, but this distinction is waning. As much of the world is surpassing that country in prosperity and is rejecting its currency as the currency of choice. And certainly it's a more powerful nation with armed forces that could take over almost any other nation on the planet, except perhaps for Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, China, Iran, Russia. <laughs> <laughs> Although we know it can defeat Grenada and Panama, and it once was capable of defeating uh, Imperial Japan, but that's ancient history. Now, contrary well, to what President Obama said about American exceptionalism, it is no longer exceptional. It is but one of a host of nations which holds as one of its governing principles that the individual is subordinate to the collective and that might makes right. So when we are going to when are we going to see another Tea Party revolution to put the United States back on the course it set back in seventeen seventy three? Good. Fortunately, there are signs of discontent amongst the ranks of the unwashed American public. And on February ninth, or sorry, nineteenth, two thousand and nine CNBC Business News Network editor Rick Santelli, reporting from the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, launched into an impromptu tirade <laughs> against President Obama's homeowners' affordability and stability plan. It was this rant that some have said launched the current Tea Party mock, uh, version 2.0, I guess, <laughs> movement in the United States. Let's listen to that rant.
Also, we want to get to our task force right now. Rick Santelli and Jason Roney of Sharma Capital are standing by at the CME Group in Chicago. And, and Rick, have you been listening to this conversation? Listening to it? I, I've been just glued to it because Mr. Ross has nailed it. You know, the, the government is promoting bad behavior because we certainly don't want to put stimulus forth and give people a whopping eight or ten dollars in their check and think that they ought to save it. And in terms of modifications, I'll tell you what, I have an idea. You know, the, the new administration's big on computers and technology. How about this, President and new administration? Why don't you put up a website to have people vote on the internet as a referendum to see if we really want to subsidize the losers mortgages or would we like to at least buy cars and buy houses in foreclosure and give them to people that might have a chance to actually prosper down the road and reward people that could carry the water instead of drink the water hey, Rick, that's did, a novel idea hey, hey rick did you what who oh, thought boy. of that yeah. Yeah, they're, 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 they're like putty in, they're like putty in your hands did you hear no it? they're not joe they're not like putty in our hands this is america how many of you people want to pay for your neighbor's mortgage that has an extra bathroom and can't pay their bills raise their hand how about we all uh, president obama are you listening how about it? we all stop paying our mortgage it's a moral hazard <laughs> this is like mob rule here i'm getting scared i'm glad i'm i'm glad i'm a Don't you guys Don't get, scared, get some Joe. bricks and They're bats already scaring you you know cuba used to have mansions and and a relatively decent economy they moved from the individual to the collective now they're driving 54 chevys maybe the last great car to come out of detroit they're, they're driving them on water too which is a little strange to watch uh at, there at you go hey rick how about the notion that Wilbur pointed out you can go down to two percent on the mortgage. You can go down to minus two percent and still have forty percent and still have forty percent not be able to do it. So why are they in the house? Why are we trying to keep I mean, them I in the house? I know Mr. Summers is a great economist, but boy, I'd love the answer to that one. Jason, okay, you get yeah. Jason, you, you, you want to? We're thinking of having a Chicago Tea Party in July. All you capitalists that want to show up to Lake Michigan, I'm going to start organizing. What are you dumping in? What are you dumping in this time? Well, I was going to be dumping in some derivative securities. What yeah. do you think so about Mayor that? Daley is uh, is marshalling the, the the police right now. Uh, Rebel route. Uh, National Guard. <laughs> Jason, are you nearby? Can you hear the cheering? I, I am, but I don't have the gallery directly behind me, so it's going to be tough to follow that act. Yeah, sure. exactly. Uh, you agree? I have to run down to the pit. Well, clearly, we're going to debate the moral issues of what government is and is not doing uh, for for some years to come. I mean, it, it's apparent even for traders. It's it's uh, the market gaps up and down a significant amount each day just on what one government may or may not do. We're up 10 points or so in the S&P on, on the idea that core Europe may have some bank stability plan. So, you know, the, the, the traders market, the uncertainty in the market will continue until we get through this process of weekly uh, government plans. You know, Rick, uh, one of our producers says if, if Roland Burris steps down, man, Senator Santelli, the junior senator from Illinois, it's a possibility. I'm just saying. Do you think I want to take a shower every hour? The last place <laughs> I'm ever going to live or work is D.C. Have you raised any money for Blago? <laughs>
No, but I think that somebody's going to have to start raising money for us. Hey, Rick, can you do that one more time? Just get the mob behind you again. I love it. Have the camera pull way out. Yeah, pull way out. Everybody uh, listen you to Rick Santelli. I don't think you're... You can't just do it at will, can you, Rick? Okay, I mean, you have to say something. Yeah, do it at will. Let's see. Listen, all I know is, is that there's only about 5% of the floor population here right now, and I talk loud enough they can all hear me. So if you want to ask them anything, let me know. These guys are pretty straightforward, and my guess is a pretty good statistical cross-section of America, the silent majority. Not so silent majority. Yeah, not today. so silent. So, Rick, are they opposed to the housing thing, to the stimulus package, to everything out there? You know, they're pretty much of the notion that you can't buy your way into prosperity and if the multiplier that all of these Washington economists are selling us is over one that we never have to worry about the economy again the government should spend a trillion dollars an hour because we'll get 1.5 trillion back Wilbur? Rick, I congratulate you on your new incarnation as a revolutionary leader. <laughs> Somebody needs one. I'll tell you what, if you read our fo founding fathers, people like Benjamin Franklin and Jefferson, what we're doing in this country now are, is making them roll over in their graves. And that was a great rant by Rick Santelli. And um, it did fire up a lot of people. In fact, uh, he is... Uh, attributed with creation of the new Tea Party movement in the United States. Uh, his rant against Obama's homeowner affordability and stability plan was against the use of taxpayers' dollars to write off the principal of some people's mortgages and use up to $275 billion to assist Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in purchasing and more easily re refinancing some mortgages. Now, like the Boston Tea Party... It was just one instance of outrage against a morally corrupt government, even though, in this instance, there is taxation with representation down there. The problem with Santelli's justifiable outrage is that his argument is falling on deaf ears, apparently. The vast majority of the American population is too illiterate and uneducated to understand why he would be outraged. According to the superficial thinking of their president, the homeowner affordability and stability plan would help the poor avoid foreclosure. To the dull and uninformed masses, this is all they see, but I would refer you to Frederick Bastiat's essay on that which is seen and that which is unseen, which Santelli undoubtedly is aware of. In order to pay Paul's mortgage, you must first rob Peter. They don't see that. Santelli knows this, but it's unfortunate that the vast majority of Americans do not. They all think that they're going to be Paul. So, it's because of this mass ignorance that the Tea Party is doomed to failure. I, unfortunately, th well, think this is going to happen. A revolution, even a violent overthrow of the American government, which won't happen, will not succeed without a philosophical revolution first. A philosophical revolution of a significant portion of the American people. The predominant philosophy of the average American is based on the supernatural, religion, altruism, and socialism. They believe the government has a moral responsibility not only to protect them from violence and force, which is legitimate, but also to protect them from themselves, from their poor economic choices. They see nothing morally wrong with robbing Peter to pay Paul, as long as they're not Peter. This is the morality of altruism. The morality of the end justifies the means. Their philosophy is based on the warped philosophy of selflessness, derived from generations being subjected to preaching about giving till it hurts, and countless stories where the moral is that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, or that we must take from each according to their ability and give to those according to their need. 
Now, in the late 18th century, the world saw the birth of a great nation built on selfishness and individualism, thrust upon a populace who saw selfishness and, and individualism as, as immoral, and community as being more of a value than in the individual. Since the time of the Enlightened Fathers, Founding Fathers, the ignorant rabble have reclaimed their nation. The ensuing economic collapse, like the Great Depression, the constant inflation, widespread ignorance, and still poverty, are the result of a philosophic disease called altruism. And only when there's a widespread adoption of a philosophy of egoism will the people of the United States be ready for another Tea Party. And only when they reject en masse the public school system of indoctrination when they no longer attend the churches preaching sacrifice and no longer pay their taxes to a morally corrupt system of government, will they be able to benefit from any revolution? Unfortunately, I don't see it happening anytime soon. Even if by some circumstance of fate they are able to elect a majority of representatives and senators which turn back 200 years of bad legislation, they'd only rebound back into a mixed economy and a system of poor Peters and rich Pauls without a fundamental shift in their sense of life, from a concern for the collective to a concern for the self. I know I'm painting a, a rather bleak picture, but I, I see nothing good coming down uh, in, in the future for well, the United you, States. You're certainly right about how people are indoctrinated. I mean, what the Pope said, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, feeds right into that. Sure, we the crowd's cheering him on. We want jobs, jobs, like, like, you, like you can pray for them and make them happen. So I guess um, a real tea party in terms of... Uh, Solving anything is still a long way off in terms of what you're saying. If you mean violent insurrection? No, I mean something that has meaningful results. Well, look, they could, they could elect all objectivists into the Senate and into the House of Representatives and have uh, a true uh, objectivist mm. president. But, you know, something, unless the masses understand the purpose of government, and, and, and they have the philosophy behind them, and they give up this uh, philosophy of altruism and robbing Peter to pay Paul, it won't work. It'll be temporary, much like with the Founding Fathers, it was temporary. Mind you, it's, it, it didn't take long to turn it around, by the way. I mean, it was uh, well on its way down the road uh, to where we are today, uh, 50, 75 years after the Founding Fathers. Correct. Actually, 13 years after the Founding Fathers, when they put in the Constitution. Um, after, Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, when they put that in and, and, and made mm -hmm. things like taxation possible. So it was it's just a fleeting moment to have a tea party. Well, I guess until uh, we find that group of people to go into the Congress or the Parliament or wherever, um, the tea parties will be rough. But when we find those people, our tea party will be served with cream and sugar. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week. We sweet. hope you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Would you lend me ten dollars? What? I said, would you lend me ten dollars? I can't hear you. I can hear. Then you lend them $10. I can't see it. Huh. <laughs>